We are back from a week off. Welcome to this week's Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, your host, and I am joined, as I am every week, by Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. How you doing, Terry? I am doing well, David. Uh, I know you were off last week. I'm glad we're able to get back at it Thanksgiving week. And I think what people should do is put on Terry's talking at Thanksgiving dinner and have everybody kind of listen to it together, right? And then they can talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> well, it depends on the families. And some of them, it might not be a bad idea if we're going to argue about stuff from 50 years ago. And then others, it's like that might start an argument. <laughs> you never know. So, um, hey, Terry, while we got a second, speaking of things that um, people might want to talk about over Thanksgiving, I, let's talk about your book real quick while we have a second. The Guy with the Sign is a collection of uh, your faith and you columns that you've written uh, the last couple of years. It's uh, The Guy with the Sign and Other Thoughts on Faith in Everyday Life. And it's holiday season. It makes a great stocking stuff for when you talk about it real quick and we'll give it a quick plug and then we'll move on. Yeah. If you like, uh, if you like my faith writing, there everything is in there from for example the guy with the sign is what do you do about the guy with the sign who wants money um and I, it, that was one of the most read uh faith columns that i did and and there are a lot of different thoughts on it uh which way to go uh another one in there is uh should you call a dying friend and uh, that's a column that i did with rocky calvito when we talked about how rocky stayed in touch with her score over the last years of his life, especially after Herb had lost his ability to speak due to a stroke. And, and that, believe me, that isn't easy on the phone <clears throat> to do that. So those are a couple things. You can get signed copies at terryplutobook.com, all one word together, terryplutobook.com. And uh, starting um, after uh, Thanksgiving, starting next week, I'm going to be ha- doing some uh, uh signings around town and also oh, great. Uh, there's a sample chapter up on cleveland.com right now and there'll be another sample chapter up uh, tomorrow uh, and that is uh, uh, about you'll like this if you remember the old red barn restaurant this will be a stories for you so um, I'm just thrilled that after I've been writing this thing now for 23 years going back to the Beacon Journal and also how it's gained a lot of both readers and traction, uh, I would say, the last, really since the pandemic hit in 2020. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, and it's perfect for this time of year, too. Just you write a lot about being thankful and grateful, and, and it's a spiritual nugget every week. So um, if you want to catch the excerpts, you can go to cleveland.com slash Pluto, and they'll be there. So, all right, Terry, we've got a lot to get through here. We're going to talk to some Browns. Uh, we can get into the Guardians. I don't think we talked. Our last podcast was before the Stephen Vote press conference, two days before, two or three days mm-hmm. before, so we can get into that a little bit. Uh, the Cavs have some interesting games coming up, including one Saturday against LeBron and the Lakers. And then, Terry, for our 100th episode a while ago, we asked people to write in where they're from and why they're Cleveland fans, and we've had responses from Charleston, South Carolina, Kenya, the U.K., and we have one today from Slovenia. So I ah. thought that was really interesting. So it'll be fun to get into. So, so let's start with the Browns, the seven and three Browns, Terry. And you wrote this right after the game. It's crazy to think that this team is seven and three after everything that's gone on. It's a tribute not just to Stefanski, but the coaching staff overall. You know, Bubba Ventrone has, I think, made the special teams better. Of course, it helps when you have a veteran kicker. And this was a, a move made by. Andrew Barry, right before the season began, go get Dustin Hopkins. 
And then also to, uh, you know, Cade York, his draft pick to say, okay, you know, we can't wait on you, Cade. We got to go get a a quality veteran. And remember a year, a couple years ago, he went out and got Bajorquez, the punter, and he's big time. Some of the rating systems have the Brown special teams like in the top three. Uh, Fans sometimes too focus too much on, uh, well, they're not getting big returns for a lot of yardage as opposed to looking at the whole unit. How does it defend? Does it stay out of penalties? You know, what's the kicking game like? And so that's been a big deal. The defense, of course, is elite. Uh, And also, you know, the front office spent time working with Stefanski to upgrade the coordinators. And Stefanski allows those guys to do their job. And clearly, um, they're doing it. And that's, I think, a, a big deal there because so much oftentimes when a head coach just calls plays the whole focus is on play calling and nothing else that he does yeah so terry i was interested in looking at what kevin stefanski has done this year and i keep thinking of what he says after every game which is like he's using this on purpose i think he says we're not perfect but we're fighting like crazy and i think that is what his team does but i also think it's what he's doing you know what i mean like he, you see, they. Sh- I think he knows they should have challenged the Miles Garrett sack when when um, the ball was right on the goal line. That if that was reviewed, it would he couldn't get the flag out, or the, the officials didn't give him the the review in time for the next play. Like they could have had a safety there, but then like the rest of the game, they, the way he pieced everything together was really impressive. I thought. I mean, they're rotating offensive tackles. <laughs> Yeah, they are. It's like it's and, like we're watching a high school game in 1988 or something, you know? It's like, I, what is that? And I, that when we're talking about the coaching staff with Ventrone and with uh, Schwartz, then you go into Bill Callahan, who is patching up that offensive line. And Stefanski often gives Callahan credit for different running plays. He says that he's one of the great play callers or at least drawing them up for the running backs. And so that's... That's another thing, too, that working with your staff, and it does seem like that they don't have a lot of it. Remember the dreaded internal discord line that uh, the Browns threw out when they got rid of Hugh Jackson and and uh, changed the coaching staff around? They, they don't seem to have much of that on their coaching staff, uh, those problems. So, Yeah, it, it was interesting, it Terry. Go ahead. I was just going to say Jimmy Watkins, our colleague, went went to the Steelers locker room the other day. And the mm-hmm. Steelers, the players were grumbling about the offensive play calling, the way they're not producing. And Mike Tomlin was like, yeah, we're fine. Don't worry about it. And then today they they fired Matt Canada, their offensive coordinator, like two days after they're losing. This is like, it's like the, the world is upside down for Browns fans. Like usually it's the Browns locker room that's having yeah. all kinds of drama. And the Steelers are the ones that are having stability. So you're right. It was really weird the other day. It's also, you, know, you sometimes have to, basically make a move like they did with Canada. I remember when uh, David Griffin fired David Blatt uh, at, at the All-Star break, and the Cavs were in first place. And I was talking to Griffin later, and he said, sometimes you have to take the excuse away from the players. He said, I didn't really think that we needed to make that big of a coaching change, but the players basically gave Blatt credit for nothing and blamed him for anything that went wrong. Well, it seems like the offense there, it was always Matt Canada's fault. I mean, he didn't seem to be very good I, from my 
distant looking at it. So, okay, you're tired of that. Now it's on you. And that's probably a a discussion maybe the front office and ownership had with Tomlin. It's like, look, we've just been hearing this stuff over and over and over with Canada. And the stats bear out the fact we're not scoring any points. So um, let's try somebody else. Yeah, and, and and there's still time to salvage the season, but but so mm-hmm. Terry, I, I have I wanted to ask you. I think Stefanski has got to be one of the most underappreciated coaches in the NFL this season. I, I just I was looking to see who the odds on favorites are for Coach of the Year. I, I couldn't believe this. Like Dan Campbell of the Lions, he's he's number one on the list. He's plus one fifty, and then it goes D'Amico Ryan's, Mike mm-hmm. McDaniel of the Dolphins, Kevin O'Connell of the Vikings. Mike Tomlin of the Steelers at six and four is ahead of Kevin Stefanski. Nick Sirianni at nine and one is ahead of Kevin Stefanski. Robert Sala of the Jets at four and six. Pete yeah. Carroll, Doug Peterson, and Kyle Shane, and all those guys have better odds to win the NFL Coach of the Year than Kevin Stefanski. And if you look, man, like he he hasn't had Deshaun Watson for two thirds of the season. Nick Chubb goes out in week two. Juan Thornhill didn't play Sunday. His two starting left uh, his two starting offensive tackles are out and he was shuffling in offensive tackles and and TJ Watt didn't have much of an impact on the game the other day. Like that, that doesn't happen by accident. I just think he's not getting enough due here and he should be much higher on this list. Maybe if the Browns start getting close to 10 or 11 wins, we'll see that. But I just couldn't believe all these guys were getting more respect um, in terms of the coach of the year race. Are you surprised by that or not? Not particularly in his why. One is Kevin doesn't help himself in his press conferences or anything. You know, you listen to that. Like you said, he, even when he tries to compliment somebody, then he throws in, we're not perfect. Or it's just, he is painful to listen to and not particularly interesting. And why, on purpose. <laughs> on purpose. But, yeah. David, the good ones, you know, I will say like Terry Francona's press conferences are interesting. Um, as I said to, I remember at one time talking to Eric Wedge about this, and it's because the, even the uh, the tribe people back then they were trying to get him to loosen up or whatever, and and I said it's not about being controversial, it's saying some obvious things in interesting and different ways. You know, don't just say, oh, like Victor Martinez is a good hitter. You can say stuff like, you know, the guy's a catcher; he's getting beat up all day behind the plate, and he goes out there and gets two hits. That's harder than people think. You know, that kind of stuff. And Stefanski has zero interest in doing that. I mean, he basically, he reminds me of a guy, he just wants to get out of each press conference alive. I don't want <laughs> you can't pin anything on me. And I remember early on in his first year, I wrote, he's kind of like a nice Belichick, you know, uh, <laughs> that there. If you were to read the just the transcripts, they wouldn't be a whole lot different. So, um, that doesn't help them. And I think there's still a lot of backlash around the NFL and that people bought the Watson deal. You know, that is held against the Browns. And of course, that is one of the reasons that you make a case for um, Kevin as a coach of the year candidate is because Watson, what has he really done? You know, Watson had a great game against Baltimore. That's the one game that he clearly swung in their direction. And I don't know if any other quarterbacks could have won that. But, um, you know, when you look at their scores and you turn around, I mean, they, they held the Bengals to three points. They won 24-3. to three. Uh, They beat 
Tennessee 27-3. With P.J. Walker, they beat the 49ers 19-7. With Walker, they beat the Colts 39-38. Arizona 27-0. I mean, anybody could have sort of played quarterback that day. Uh, So really the one big game he's had, it was Baltimore. It was huge. It really was. Uh, So, see, I think that it's a positive, but there's a lot of backlash about that. And also you would think that um, with Watson being out right after that Baltimore game that there would have been some sort of letdown, and there wasn't. All right, Terry. So we were talking about Watson being out, and we haven't really talked about uh, Dorian Thompson Robinson very much. His his second NFL start, the first one he found out about a couple a couple yeah. hours before the game. So this was you could probably say this was his first real NFL start in the regular season. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twenty four of forty three, fifty five point eight percent, hundred and sixty five yards passing, fifty four point nine rating. What did, what did you think of what you saw from DTR? What did you think of what you saw from DTR on Sunday and in, in I don't know. Well, Give us until, a quick until that last, the first half I thought was pretty solid. I think they put up 10 points, and he looked pretty comfortable with the uh, offense. Then remember in the second half, because I was sitting by you, and heading into uh, that last drive, they had a grand total of 28 yards passing in the second half. And so I'm thinking, well, they, they certainly figured something out, and there's been they've not been able to adjust to it. And then he was they made several big throws on that drive. I looked at it. There were – short to medium throws, but they were quick and on time. And they got down the field and they kicked the field goal. So I think that was great for him. And by the way, the first DTR um, game, I would say that's Kevin Stefanski's low point of the season. Because remember, it's like, well, we didn't have the second game plan ready to go, all that kind of stuff. Well, you should always have, in my mind, kind of two game plans ready, one for your starter and at least uh, bare bones of something else if you have to go to the bench because you never know when a quarterback's going to get hurt. Uh, so you you were correct. This is his first chance. I mean, And the guy, by the way, he's, he's faced Baltimore, he's faced Pittsburgh. That's it. Yeah, and it's something. To, you think of quarterbacks as being these steely-eyed, you know, nothing rattles them kind of guys. And after DTR threw that interception, like he was visibly shaken on the Mm -hmm. sideline and, and Deshaun Watson had to kind of help him get his head up and say like, listen, it's not over. We're going to need you. And uh, I I thought that was interesting the way that, that Deshaun picked them up and then he went out and played. And the other thing, Terry, about DTR that I thought was if you add in, I think the Browns had six drops during that game. And if you add those in, then he's 30 of 43, probably for over 200 yards. And, They'll get some of that cleaned up. There were guys dropping passes that usually don't drop them, especially David Njoku. So that'll be different, I think, at well, Denver this Njoku Sunday. Njoku should vote for DTR as his all-time favorite quarterback because he threw to him 15 times. 15! <laughs> yeah, and Njoku and, said after the game he was going home and getting on the jugs gun so it doesn't happen again. <laughs> and also, yeah, and, and he did. Um, because Stefanski mentioned that he sent him some copies of FaceTime or something of him at home with his judge gun catching passes. Yep. Um, Elijah Moore so- shows some life in, with that. Um, now I'm getting things in the mail, email, and what about this, saying, well, you know, yeah, they won, but the Browns have no receivers. Well, okay, they got Cooper, but they have nobody else. We're not getting any production from them. Your thoughts? Oh, I thought you were going to say what your thoughts were first. I'll, no. I'll, well, we've talked about this, Terry. David Njoku is your second receiver. He's, their, yeah. he's your number two receiver. And 
I think that Stefanski keeps saying we're going to need everybody in this locker room. We're going to need everybody. Like Cedric Tillman, I, I don't know how much he's been targeted this season, but it has not been hardly at all. No. You can count it on one hand, I think. And these other guys are going to have to start producing because Cooper's going to be bracketed and they're going to have to find other guys that are in single coverage or, or sitting down in a zone somewhere because it can't go on like this forever. And I, I think there are there's some truth to that those emails that that's got to happen. There's got to be more production for more guys. Correct. But also, I just say the idea is to win the game. And if that's what it takes, you know, that the tight end and more uh, along with Cooper, then you, you just do it. Because there's something weird about the offense because – Tillman moved into the uh, DPJ role, and they weren't throwing to him either. So, That's true. And the year before, he was catching the ball. I, I think DPJ is a decent receiver, and but I don't know whether that is a guy that's just running down the field to clear out safeties or something. I don't. I don't get it. But so we're going to see. But my point is. Stefanski's doing better with that idea of what does it take to win this game? You know, I'm not going to sit around with not, I don't want to hear analytics on everything or whatever. Uh, how do I win games? And you could roll back to uh, how he was so successful in Minnesota the one year when they opened with Teddy Bridgewater, or they thought they were, and he got hurt in training camp. Then they went to Sam Bradford, and I believe he got hurt in the third game of the season. And then he rolled into Case Keenum and went 11-3 and with Keenum starting, and they made the playoffs. He kept adapting. Now, he was the quarterback coach then and had, uh, I think, quite a bit of input also into the play calling. So he showed that. And just like with Brissett, I thought last year, oh, yeah, but he was only 4-7 and seven or whatever. They were 10th in scoring with Jacoby Brissett. And if you had thrown this defense in with Jacoby Brissett, you could take that four and seven and at least flip it around. Because, you know, that was the, the time of blowing coverages and and those those things that were just so annoying. In fact, it was funny. I saw they showed some tapes of uh, Flacco's game with the Jets against Cleveland, you know, last year. And there's these guys just wide open, 20 yards behind everybody else in the defense. And, and we've rarely seen that. Which just shows you, uh, you know, playing more of this man-to-man stuff when you have guys, at least they know what they're supposed to be doing, even if they get beat. The assignment, soundness, and the tackling, it has been night and day from last year to this year. I don't think anybody could deny that. So um, I just want to wrap up DTR real quick, Terry. So it's crazy to think he went from not playing to starting to – the end of the game that the fans were chanting DTR, DTR. Yeah. And what do you want to see from him against the Broncos on Sunday? Just a little bit, a little bit more of you maybe thrown downfield and that. Cause I, I don't blame Kevin for having those quick throws. I saw there was a thing on the television set. We were in the press box. I looked up middle of the third quarter. He was getting rid of the ball in 2.1 seconds. That is fast. And it was intentional to keep Watt from wrecking the game and some of these others. So now, in fact, I, I mentioned to you a couple times, I thought they could throw longer if you rolled them out down towards the sideline and let it rip that way. Because he could certainly throw off the move. So that would be something there. Um, you know, Denver's good all of a sudden. Denver's won, I think, four in a row. Russell Wilson's found itself. Um, 
So that's and that's going to be, by the way, his first road game as a quarterback. And Denver is loud. So let's it's see. It's a how hard that goes. place to win. Yep. But I and, remember I thought it would be a big problem for the Browns when Walker went into Seattle, which is very loud. And I think they only had one false start in that game. Yeah, and speaking of that, Terry, man, the Browns had one penalty for ten yep. yards the other day. That I, I can't remember the last time I saw that from a Browns no. team. Which was something else against uh, the defense they were going against. So, uh, all right, so we got to move along here, but we do need to do the Terry Pluto weekly kicker update. Mm-hmm. Dustin Hopkins season stats. I'll just r- rattle them off real quick. Twenty-six of twenty-nine. He has a long of fifty-eight yards. Fifteen of sixteen on extra points, and seven of seven from fifty yards or longer. Those are the numbers, Terry. Where are you at with Dustin Hopkins? Well, they are 4-0 and in games decided by three points or fewer. And without Dustin Hop, uh, Hopkins, they probably would just say a nor- normal kicker, you might be 1-3. and three. Simple yeah, as that. Yeah, that's true. If you, if, you, if you do the math, that's pretty, pretty accurate. Yeah, um, and- like it, because, I mean, they, you have to assume the other kicker would have made one of those clutch field goals in there at some point. But I doubt he would kick. This this has been very reminiscent of some of the best of Phil Dawson. And, by the way, like Dawson, Hopkins is kicking better from longer in his 30s than he did in his 20s. And that's when Phil began to gain more distance than that. And he said it just came with experience and how to handle things. So... That's huge, and Bajorquez is very good punting too. He he had one that he shanked, but overall, uh, I just I have a tremendous amount of confidence. And I remember how when Cade York was struggling, there was this whole school of thought that um, Bajorquez was a bad holder, and earlier in his career that that was the problem. Um, and I remember texting somebody with the Browns way high up, and he just simply wrote back to me. He said, look, we love Cade York, but it's not the holder's fault. And I think we see that since Hopkins is having the best year of his career with Bohorikas. Yep, yep. All right, Terry, we will wrap up the Browns here in a second. I, I wanted to sh- share this stat that I, I came across on the, the uh, X machine formerly known as Twitter. It's a guy named yeah. Ben B. Baldwin. His uh, handle is Computer Cowboy. But he, he sent this out. It's an imp- amazing chart. Through 11 weeks, the Browns defense has been the hardest ever since 1999 to earn a first down. Against. <laughs> so I guess the, the average conversion rate in 2023 is 70%, where a team mm-hmm. converts a series into a first down and keeps and keeps going. The Browns have allowed 56%. So that's Mm. 14% below what the average series conversion rate is. And we're talking about, like, that's better than the 2019 Patriots, who are number two on this list. The 2005 Chicago Bears, who were at uh, 12.3% lower than average. The 2002 Buccaneers. The 2019 San Francisco 49ers. The 2006 Bears. Like, since they've been keeping this since 1999, the, the Browns have the best conversion rate or lack of conversion rate for opposing offenses they're allowing 50 i couldn't believe that that's that's so yeah. impressive since 1999 and then you'll we'll see the, if they can keep that up the, but their third how they are on third down getting off the field all the time too it's a, it's it's elite um it is a combination of the 
front office bringing in the type of players that Schwartz likes and then Schwartz putting them to work. And it's a combination, too, of the front office saying analytics is something, but it's not everything. They got heavier on that defense. Shelby Harris, Maurice Hurst, you know, along with Tomlinson in the middle of that line, I think uh, Harris had two uh, tip passes on Kenny Pickett. So they did some really good bargain shopping with those two guys, with Hurst and with Harris, and along with spending money, Ogbo and Tomlinson. And then you look at the, the secondary. Uh, now, this is getting a little bit serious now. McLeod's out and Thornhill, I don't like. Now, he's back having this the, the infamous calf muscle again. Uh, so that's something to be concerned on the, with the safety. So. But overall, and, you know, the Schwartz mantra of, you know, how they're going to play in the wide nine and all this. By the way, do you notice Miles Garrett no longer drops these kind of passive-aggressive weird things about play calling the coordinators anymore? Because I do think that Schwartz sat him down and said, you know, this is how we do it. And Miles, I've got – and he could probably he has his chart on all the great defensive ends he's had – you could be as good as any of them, maybe better. Just stick with this, you know. And Miles has done that. And Miles, has, every member, he's he's still growing up. I mean, as a player. And one of the voices of this team now, and you're mm-hmm. right, you're seeing him smiling a lot more. I don't think it's because of the winning. I think because it's fun to come to work every day. Yeah. And they're yeah. having a good time. And I think with Miles, you have to, whether it's fair or not earn his respect and he has to decide that you're going to help make him be a better player and you know schwartz came in with that reputation for linemen and so that helped to begin with he had that whereas uh you know some of the other guys he's played for defensive coordinators i think it's like well this guy didn't know anything what did he ever do and that matter you know miles has been like he was, I believe, the number one or number two recruit in the entire country coming out of high school when he went to uh, Texas A&M. Then he's the top pick in the draft. So he's had these exalted positions uh, in his entire life. And then when he was here and the teams were bad early, it was like, well, you know, he, he's he's the one shining light and everything. Uh, so now he's part of a whole defense. And, and I like how Schwartz talks about, you know, they're it's not just you getting your sacks. It's, you know, team sacks and how things matter. Uh, how Zahari, uh, uh, Darius Smith, Darius Smith doesn't, <clears throat> boy, I was going to flip into Darius Carlin, but it shows that. Zedarius That's the next Smith, segment. <laughs> yeah. Um, he doesn't have that many sacks or whatever, but I believe he's second on the team in quarterback hits. And so these guys are setting it up together and he, you know, Schwartz's point always is, how is the unit playing? And the unit is playing great. All right. Well, the Browns are at Denver on Sunday, and then they're not coming home after the Denver game. They're actually heading out to L.A. and are going to practice out there and stay out there and play the Rams the following Sunday. So they'll be breaking from the routine a little bit. Uh, it's going to be an interesting two-game swing. Uh, let's take a break, Terry. Um, when we come back, we're going to get into the Cavs a little bit. Um, we I, Let's talk about Darius Garland when we get back. I want to mm-hmm. see what you think about his turnover problem 
and what you would do if you were a coach to kind of help him solve this. So we'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Uh, Terry, before I forget, as I often do, I want to mention your newsletter. If you want to sign up for Terry's newsletter, you can get everything he writes once a week in your email box every Monday. Go to cleveland.com slash newsletters and just click on the box with Terry's newsletter and put your email in. It takes like a minute and you can get everything he writes. So it's a great way to keep up with what Terry has been doing. So, all right, Terry, the Cavs are seven and six and they've won three in a row. Pretty impressive win over the Nuggets the other night. and we're kind of looking at a team that has not really been whole the whole season and different guys are moving in and out of the lineup. But one thing that's a little concerning, even during this winning streak, Darius Garland is really playing well offensively, but he's averaging 4.8 turnovers a game. Uh, and he's averaging 5.8 assists, but the 4.8 turnovers is really high. I, I, it got me thinking about all the coaches you've known for the Cavs over the years. And, and what, what do you do when your star player is turning the ball over so much in terms of, talking with him or restricting his minutes a little bit or what do you do and are you worried at all about this Darius Garland turnover issue that's been popping up I am because the 5.8 assist is not that high in the contract now I, I remember some guys it was more in the older day olden days so they were averaging not, almost nine or ten assists and four turnovers so they had the ball a lot they were creating a lot of baskets for their teammates and sometimes some turnovers you know you really you could get with in this age of all the technological stuff, you can break down his turnovers and put them into a 10 minute video thing. And like, these are the passes you're trying that are not working. Um, and what, you know, the old thing, don't throw it there. I mean, Lenny Wilkins had uh, one of his pet peeves. And I saw that is like, you don't try to throw the ball to somebody inside from the top of the key. There are too many hands in the way. He would have all these drills, in other words, even if it looks like the guy is sort of open and you want to get, get to someone inside, pass it to somebody on the wing. It's much easier to throw an inbounds pass or a, a pass to the post from the wing because the angles are better than from up there. Because you just said that there, there's too much traffic. It creates a better line of vision. Um, and that was that was something that, I have seen from Garland, he's sometimes forcing those uh, those passes. And I think there, once in a while he's trying these lob passes that aren't there. And actually, his floater is there when he goes in. He could shoot it a little more. Uh, but my my guess is it's not anything that's uh, you know sink him. And the fact is, what they won a couple games without uh, Donovan handling the ball, and because he's been out. Uh, but I I think there's probably one or two things he keeps doing over and over again. They're creating them, and that's how that's what you do. You just show it's not to put them down. To say, look, this is why it's happening. Yeah, it's habits and and thinking. And it, you know, there's a saying in hockey, Terry, make the easy play. If you have a guy open, mm -hmm. instead of trying to force the puck up the ice through three sets of legs, to give it to the open guy and let him do it from a different angle. It's basically what you're talking about, making the easy play come into the post from the other side. So just for some perspective, of, there, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And a lot of times, not just from Garland, but I've seen these other guys, they, they are enamored with trying to throw the ball into the corner for the corner three. So they're they're almost coming, they're, they'll skip passes called across the court, but they're almost throwing it along the, the uh, end line, and it's crowded there. And so those balls are getting tipped, or uh, you end up throwing them too high, for the guy to catch and shoot just because 
you want to take corner threes doesn't mean you force the ball in that direction. I just like once in a while I say, just because you're open for a corner three, but it's not your shot, you don't have to take it. Yeah, and just for some perspective, Terry, the 4.8 turnovers this season, the first four years of his career for Darius Garland's average turnovers per game, 2.6, 3.0, 3.6, and 2.9 last season. Now he's up to mm-hmm. 4.8. So I'm thinking we'll see some, what do they call it, regression to the mean as we go mm-hmm. along. And get more, He gets more comfortable and gets more games in here. But uh, I also know he was playing, wasn't it, with a hamstring or what was a groin pull or whatever it was early in the year uh, because the three-point shooting has not been that good this season. Uh, when you look at it, and I believe he's at 32%. And so that's been uh, a bit of a problem also. Uh, I, I mean, I really like Garland as a player. The biggest concern for me always with him is durability because he, he is built slight and he is prone to just getting these different type of, what you call them, wear and tear injuries or soft tissue. Take your pick. All right, so speaking of guard play, Terry, Craig Porter Jr., I know you've been high on him from the beginning mm-hmm. when the Cavs signed him to a two-way deal. 23 years old, and Donovan Mitchell gave him the game ball the other night after he, yeah. he scored 21 points, a career high, 7 of 10 from the field, 7 of 7 from the free throw line, two assists, four rebounds, two steals, and a block. He played 25 minutes and did all that. Yeah, uh, It's really it's important to that he's doing this given the Cavs depth at guard right now, right? You mentioned Donovan Mitchell injury situation. Uh, Ty Jerome has been out with an ankle sprain. Like this has been a pleasant surprise and a big boost for this backcourt. And when Jerome was playing in the preseason, a little bit early season, I was really underwhelmed. Uh, I didn't, I, I know they were high on him. I didn't see, I didn't have much of an opinion on one way or the other when they, they signed him, but, Porter has the ability. He's an old-fashioned guard. I remember Wayne Embry would say he's not a point guard. He's not a shooting guard. He's a guard. He could defend from that position. He could rebound. Uh, Like you said, he has seven field goals, seven free throws, 21 points. Now, it would be nice if he could make some three-pointers, but that's not his game. So don't make it be your game. Make it be your game, which is a lot of penetration, going to the rim, setting up your teammates, drawing fouls. You know, this is a guy that when he was at Wichita State with his team in rebounding and block shots and assists, I think he was second in scoring, you know, loose balls, all that. He plays like a guy who knows every night his job is on the line. He's strong physically. He's got, you know, they, they always say strong, you know, core, the core muscles and all that, that it's hard to bump him off the ball. And he fits the kind of stuff that I like guys coming off the bench. Cause even if the shots not falling, he's doing all this other stuff. Yeah. And then you look at the end of the game and especially when he was in college there and he's filled up the box score in like five mm-hmm. different ways. And you're like, wow, how did he do that? So all uh, those 21 points, by the way, Terry were the most points scored by an undrafted Cavs rookie since cult hero, Matthew Delavadova. <laughs> so, wow. That's an interesting tidbit. So there you go. Um, all right. So the Cavs tonight, we're taping this on Tuesday afternoon here. The Cavs are at Philly tonight as part of that in-season mm-hmm. tournament. Then they're playing Wednesday here back at home against the Heat in the in-season tournament. And then they have the Lakers on Saturday at 7.30. And the Cavs game tonight against Philly is on TNT. How about that, Terry? The Cavs on national TV, a 51-win team from a year ago. Yeah. And every time you turn on the TV, it's the Celtics, Lakers, and uh, 
and 76ers playing almost every time. So the Cavs finally get some national exposure tonight. Hey, I haven't had a chance to ask you, do you like this in-season tournament or not? What do you think? No, 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 <laughs> nothing. I don't care. Who cares? The players barely care. The only people that care are whoever makes the money for drawing the stuff on the floor. That's it. <laughs> whoever gets to redesign that. No. What if they made what if they made it where if you win this thing you get at least an eighth seed in the playoffs? If there was something to play for. Maybe. Uh, I guess my feeling is regular season games should be something anyway. I mean, you just should. And creating this, whatever this is, what each if you're on the winning team, you get a hundred grand. I mean, yeah. it's great for if you're Craig Porter Jr. or somebody like that. But in a league where the average salary, by the way, the average salary is over nine million dollars. Did I say it was over nine million dollars? Because it's over nine million dollars. That would be like, okay, you and I, if we won this, we get like two hundred bucks. I mean, it's nice, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, but it isn't like, gee, I've got to go out because I've been just uh, lollygagging. Remember that from the Bill Durham? The third? Well, he's been lollygagging. They're out there lollygagging. All you, but I'm going to just crank it up for this in-season tournament because I like the floor that they changed <laughs> the colors. It's just, I mean, why not make shots count for four points? You want to make it real different? I mean, give me a break. Yeah, put trampolines in like that slam yeah, ball trampoline. game. Yeah, that's completely gented up. So uh, yeah, here's the other thing: maybe nobody's allowed to play more than twenty minutes in these games, and then see how you win. Yeah, <laughs> all right. We'll put it all on the drawing board and see. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, let's let's make it worth something or make it worth nothing. I think no, you're right. It, it it it's just worth it's just worth nothing, <laughs> and you know they they have all these kind of things of margin of victory matters and that. I just want the Cavs to play well. And that's what I've liked of late. They're getting back to defending better. Um, they're not as fixated on the three-point shot. By the way, you know, Chris Fedor, uh, by the is one of the best basketball writers in the country. He's one of the best basketball writers ever to come through this market, says a guy who considers himself, once upon a time, one of the best basketball writers ever to come through the market, uh, being me. And you also think, and also Brian Winhurst came through here. Brian was kind of my protege. And Bert Grafe was a very good one. And I learned a lot from Bert uh, about that. But I like how uh, Chris has been highlighting what Matt Struess does. It's not just about three-pointers. And you look at where, where who is uh, – all right, who are the Browns – who are the Browns, geez, how Who are the Cavs' top three rebounders? I got Jared it in front Allen, of me. Evan Mobley. And I don't know who the third one is. Who's the third one? Okay, Mobley's at ten and a half. Allen's at seven. Max Struess is nearly at six. And he's number three. Number three. And oh. then Mitchell's Mitchell's four point nine. Um, and Struess has really raised up his rebounding totals from when he was with Milwaukee. I mean, with Miami, because he sees the need of team rebounding. That was one of the things I was talking about when the. Cavs played uh, the Knicks. The Knicks are sending everybody to the boards. Remember, Josh Hart was getting like seven rebounds a game, and that was not just the big guys. And you have to help your big men. And guys like Strews and Mitchell, um, Levert, they can get some rebounds if they're told to do it. And I, I have seen that of late 
uh, more emphasis from JB on these other guys. And I think Struess is leading the way. I mean, did you see the dunk he had the other day? I mean, he was like something like slamming on that. And you look at that and he's another guy. Now he's hit the jackpot uh, in terms of, you know, contract, but he still plays like a kid out of DePaul who got cut and bounced around and cut here and there. And also, I mean, he is a great one to talk to uh, young Porter because it's, look, I was just like you, kid, just like you. In fact, you're farther along right now than I was. And there's money to be made here by developing an all-around game. And that's why I, w- I was so glad that um, the advertising the Cavs gave on him, which was he's not just a three-point shooter and all that. He's got a, a game. By the way, George Yang has shown me a little more of like kind of shots off the move and that than I thought he had. Uh, I have a friend of mine, uh, Bob Fick, who loves to uh, uh, love, he loves the Sixers and watches that. He kept telling me that they just would, didn't play him enough in Philadelphia, and a lot of times they just had him standing in the corner. Uh, and now he was shot forty percent from the corner. That's fine, but uh, Nian, a couple of the games he's helped defensively, covering some of the bigger men. Um, so Kobe's two big acquisitions there have been very helpful. And then you turn around and look at. Porter picked up undrafted free agent. It wasn't the funny. It was all Amani Bates, Amani Bates, Amani Bates, and look who's playing. Yep. The guy who fills up the stat sheet. Because you you got enough um, guys shooting, taking shots, especially when Mitchell is playing, um, that you don't – I mean, it's nice when Porter scores 21. You don't need that. But if he gets 8 to 10 off the bench in 20 minutes, he's, he's getting five assists and four rebounds and uh, six floor burns. That's what you want. Yeah, the Cavs are bigger. They're better shooting, and they're tougher this year. I just think we need to – they're going to rip off like 6-8 in a row at some point here mm-hmm. soon when they get everything going. But, um, hey, Terry, you mentioned Chris Feeder. I want to give a, Chris, a quick plug uh, Ethan Sands has joined Chris on the Cavs beat, and they have taken the Wine and Gold Talk podcast to five days a week. And they were joking; Fedor was joking about having Struess play all forty-eight minutes every night. Well, I could see <laughs> and, you know but, the temptation is there, definitely. But if if his if his approach to the game every day, just grinding, and and we do it this way, if it rubs off on all the other guys. You can take his minutes down even more than they are now because yeah. other guys will start to play like that and it'll seep into the rest of the roster. And pretty soon you got you got a really good thing going. So this is how I it mean, starts, right? One of the dangers, by the way, is um, for the guys from Miami that other teams are telling me is you have to be careful when you get them because they're, they play so physical and play so hard and practice so hard. You, sometimes they're, they're – they're worn down when you get them physically. So, and they'll come in and they want to play 48 minutes like it's the last game of their life. And so you have to watch that because the temptation is what? I want that out there all the time. Uh, but that, to me, it's Ain't been possible. exciting. You know, isn't it, David, to see that uh, Struess, Niang, and Porter specifically, uh, the new guys coming in. And then you turn around, and I think Levert has played very well. Because remember, Levert, I told you a couple of my friends who were agents, they were just shocked that he came back for that deal in terms of uh, oh, it was a two-year deal. And, you know, was, I know, well, $16 million, it sounds crazy, but the NBA is nuts. Remember, the average salary in the NBA is almost $10 million. It's nine plus some million. And so they have him, and he's willing to come off the bench um, 
I'm just excited. By the way, it was a week ago that I got two columns saying, two emails saying, it really is time to get rid of JB. Uh, we're not even out of November. Yeah, you know. By I'm the way, you. remember, like, uh, I I like Charlie Brown and Peanuts, and and it's like somebody would say something like that, and then he would just he would just write sigh, s i g h. Like this is just so stupid. <laughs> All right, Terry. Um, yes. let's move on to the Guardians here. Uh, we're running a little behind here, so I want to keep us moving. So, you wrote about the Cal Con- Quantrill move the other day. We got an email from our longtime listener Neil in Jamestown, New York, and he says, "Hey, Terry." When Chris Antonetti quickly admits that Quantrill was moved for financial reasons, that can't be a good forecast for an offseason to come. Your thoughts? And you wrote about this about what Antonetti said, that they were expecting Quantrill to make about $6.5 million, I think, in arbitration mm-hmm. next season, and that played into it. What's your take on how they handled that whole situation and, and what's the offseason looking like? Well, what it is, it was a trade of Quantrill for Barlow. That's what it was. And they made the decision. That they try to, do you see, uh, uh, what was his name? Ronaldo Lopez. I believe he got 30 million over three. I forgot who he signed with. Um, 10 million a year. I really liked him. They did too. But that's starting to be the going rate for these guys eight to 10 million for uh, really good relievers who aren't even pure closers. So they felt that getting Barlow. I mean, also I've been getting the emails, you know, they, they tried to De Los Santos for him and, and Barlow overall in the ERA over four. If you look at Barlow, he got off to a bad start with the Royals last year. He got traded at midseason to um, San Diego. He had an ERA of about three. And if you look at his career of the last two years in 21 and 22, his ERA was like 2.3, pitching very well for the Royals. Uh, they've just felt that they needed to get another experienced arm back there to help Class A because the, the burden of trying to save all those games on him <clears throat> was enormous. And Trevor Steffen, who they were counting on, just he would melt in the eighth, eighth inning. And so that's what it was, uh, valuing the relievers. And I will say this. Now, you know, I like Quantrill. I was a Quantrill fan. I still am. I wouldn't be surprised if he bounces back and pitches well. Uh, but Analytics hates him. He won the lowest strikeout rates going, um, you know, high contact. And generally, when the Guardians get rid of a pitcher, they're right. You can look at whether it's Clevenger uh, or um, Kobe uh, Kluber, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple of others. I had a list of about four of them. Um, of recent vintage when they got when they got rid of them or didn't resign them, the guys were pretty much done. So they not only are good at developing them, they're pretty good at knowing when uh, the development is over. And they must have felt that about uh, Quantrill. To me, they gave Mike Zanino six million bucks. You know, I would have liked to have just see them keep Quantrill and find another way to get Barlow. Yeah, because yeah. by the way, by the way, San Diego is cutting payroll like crazy. Uh, so that was a big move there. They wanted, they knew he was going to make six or seven million. They took De Los Santos for one million. So that trade could have been made without necessarily Quantro. But the the Guardians and several other teams are are very worried on the Bellies contract. 
And I'm hearing from some readers saying, well, they will be able to get a lot of money because they go back in the free agent market for, for the cable contract. That whole landscape has changed because of streaming. David, do you know much about that? Because I don't. Yeah, I was just going to talk about that for a second, just for some background. So basically, Bally's uh, Sports Network, which airs the Cavs, the Guardians, their bank, their parent company is bankrupt. They're, they've been haggling with teams all year, like, we're going to give you some of the money. We're not going to give you any of the money. And it's coming to the point where they're going to pull the plug potentially on the Guardians. Mm-hmm. And MLB might take over the broadcasting of the Guardians games next season. That's all to be determined. But as you mentioned, Terry, the Bally money being kind of... Uh, hanging out there yes or no or how much are we going to get the guardians are going to have our time making their offseason budget because of it because they don't they know they don't know if that money's coming in it's probably not how much are they going to make from mlb i think it's like 80 percent they get yeah. from mlb instead of the full 100 percent. so that all figures in and it's it's just a mess it's too bad it's funny it looks like the two teams that they know for sure they're going to cut are the guardians and the rangers yeah go figure yeah now they said the rangers contract was basically double cleveland's um, they're like 110, Cleveland's like 53 or something, a million. So those are things to keep an eye on. But it definitely is a factor there uh, on what uh, what they'll spend. So let's keep an eye. Let's see how Quantro does with Colorado, which, by the way, is a horrible, horrible place for him to get traded to. Uh, a, a, a pitcher that pitches to contact in a ballpark where the ball flies all over the place. But if you're Colorado and you're desperate for pitchers and they want to give me Cal Quantrill for a Class A catcher, I'll take it. Why not? Why not? Um, yeah. why not? If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. All right, Terry, uh, real quick, I want to get into Stephen Vogt real quick. We we podcasted a couple of Tuesdays ago, and then on Friday, Stephen Vogt had his introductory press conference down at Progressive Field. You were down there. Uh, just real quick, highlights, things you'll remember, or things that impressed you or didn't impress you, either way. Well, he, now he does have kind of a knack of talking about the obvious in an interesting way. And he's a bit of a storyteller like Francona. So I could see from uh, your meetings and all that with him, he's very engaging. You could tell why. I mean, he's talking about how he was headed out to the horse farm waiting for Chris Antonetti to call. And then he gets a job. He goes, well, I guess I got to go finish cleaning up the manure. Um, <laughs> and that's a, that's a Francona story, you know. Yeah. You know, Francona was like, yeah, I was sitting there, and I'm, next thing I know, I ate four hot dogs, and I got indigestion, and I'm thinking about the bullpen. I mean, it's like, it's just, and by the way, no, you know, who gets hurt by this? Nobody. Meanwhile, people are laughing, and, and there's a humanity, a human element there. How we will do, I have no clue, because he hasn't done anything, really. Now, you could talk about, yes, catchers have a lot more to do, and they do now, because they, they are working with the analytics people and the scouts more than ever. Uh, but you know, as I wrote a column, who do you want? You weren't getting correct counsel, so just get off of that. Counsel's doing Milwaukee, and he was playing for Chicago. He wanted to stay near home, and he wanted to get a bunch of money. And even had they matched that offer that he got from the Cubs, he was going to the Cubs because he's got two daughters in school in Whitefish Bay, which is just south of Milwaukee and in high school. He did not want to leave, mess that up. So that wasn't going to happen. So then you're into, you know, Mendoza, these other guys that got hired. I mean, I don't know. You can put them all in a bag, close your eyes, and pick one out. I don't know which one of these guys is going to be any good. I did think it was interesting, Terry. You're talking about the analytics side and also kind of the yeah. gut side. And, and Tito did that so well, was just kind of mm-hmm. working on both sides of that 
fence. But uh, Stephen Vogt was talking about how like there's 150 to 175 decisions that you yeah. make in every game that can decide whether you win or lose. And he says a catcher is is in the middle of all of that. And he also said like he 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 loved one of the things he prided himself was he loved to chat up guys when they came into bat. And like he mm-hmm. says, I was really good at that. And if I could distract you from paying attention to the pitcher even a little bit, like that was what I was going to do. So I thought that was just kind of a little symbolic tip to like both sides of the, the analytics and the the baseball gut thing that he seems like he's into both of it. And I thought but that was a good want, sign for the Guardians. Francona was very good at distracting you when things were going hard with some story about something or um, making one of his players seem very human, who's struggling, whatever it may be. Um, and that, it makes the players feel like the guy has their back. But now and then Tito will say, look, we, you know, I don't know what Quan was doing on that play once. I remember early in spring training, he goes, he just overthrew the cutoff man. He knows we can't overthrow the cutoff man. But he, he came out of the game. He's in the dugout. He look, he just looks at me. He goes, before I say anything, he said, I know. <laughs> and, and it sees, so see how he did that. He turned around and made, acknowledged it was a poor play on Quan's part. Missing the cutoff, man. Then he turned around and turned into a positive for Quan because Quan said, oh, yeah, I know, Tito, I know. And, and then he goes, I didn't even have to follow it up from there. So it, that's the kind of stuff that uh, is important because uh, is that's leadership there. But, you know, the big deal will be, man, you know, how many pitches do I let this guy go? You've got – I'm so glad they're going to have Carl Willis's back. You're going to have Sandy back. Um I'm going, waiting to see, I keep waiting to see, they're supposed to make a big, you know, kind of third base coach hire or something like that coming up to see who that's going to be. Um, and I'm, I'm all for it, but man, there's only one Tito. And I know here come the emails. Yeah, but how many World Series did he win here? Okay. And how many times did they go to the playoffs here? And how many times did they have teams worth watching here? And, and all that type of thing. Uh, I'm just, uh, I hope they have the right guy. Uh, I would not have wanted to be hiring a manager this year, David. I really wouldn't have. Well, we can say a lot of things, and I'm sure there's a lot of opinions, but one thing we can't say is that the Guardians didn't do their due diligence, I think. They said, yeah. what was it, 55 hours of Zoom interviews? And yeah, it just, this, he, yeah. he said he met everybody in the organization, and they they put those guys through the ringer to make sure they didn't miss anything. And yeah. So that's a good sign. Yeah, you just don't know. I remember uh, Francona was telling me about Mickey Callaway early on, who Callaway had ended up having his problems off the field, and then things really degenerated when he went with the Mets. But Callaway was a good pitching coach here. And they brought Callaway up to be Tito's pitching coach. And Callaway, he said, you you know, that's one of the things, he goes, a manager puts a lot of pressure on a pitching coach, you know. How are you? How do you want to handle the bullpen? This and that. He said, and Callaway. He said he knew when he he needed to stand up to me. He says, and Carl Willis. He had that because he had had Willis before, and then Willis came back here after Callaway left. He said that's when you 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 have a guy. So that's what we'll have to see when Stephen vote when it comes time for him to stand up to the front office or stand up to a player. Uh, how does he do it? Now, I was told, because I said, just because he's, quote, unquote, a great teammate and everybody likes him, that doesn't necessarily mean he's a good manager. And I was told by a couple of people, no, they really checked it out, that he was a guy who would challenge um, 
you know, teammates, much like Napoli did and much like Jason Giambi did uh, in the clubhouse. And they must, the, the Guardians, I think, lost sight of this the last few years. They must go get a couple veterans like Giambi and like uh, uh, Napoli. Was Napoli or, or even, uh, I was told like last year, uh, Luke Maley was a big help along and Austin Hedges. They lost something like that. Jose and Ahmed Rosario were very good with Latino players, but they needed uh, some of the overall thing that they just didn't have. And I mean, that was vote vote did that himself. They better go get some guys like that because your rookie manager is going to need some help. All right. Well, the guardians are going to be opening the season oddly enough in Oakland, which is where, where Stephen vote has a huge fan base and uh, it's going to be an emotional series for him and, it was funny. He said, yeah, hopefully we'll start with a win. And he said, I mean, three wins. Yeah. <laughs> he corrected himself real fast. So, all right, Terry, we got to move along here. We do have a couple more letters we want to get to for our hundredth episode a while back. You asked fans to write and where they're from and why they are a Cleveland sports fan. So we got a couple here to wrap up today's podcast. This first one is from Brian Kirkendall. And he says, hey, guys, you wanted stories about being a Cleveland fan. I was born in Mansfield and I live in Minneapolis. Now, my dad loved Woody Hayes and was a Steelers fan. I took on being a diehard Buckeyes fan, but my love was Greg Pruitt and Brian Sipe. Mm. What I think really cemented my Browns fandom was my uncle got me a subscription to the Browns News Illustrated for Christmas, uh. and I read every word. When the Browns moved, I was a student at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. I put all my Brown stuff in a box and sent it to the league office and <laughs> told them where they could put it. <laughs> I was so a hurt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. Uh, when they came back, I was lukewarm about it. Then me and my wife, who is from Pittsburgh, went to see the Brownies and Steelers in Pittsburgh, and those darn orange helmets pulled me back in. I always rooted for the Indians and somewhat the Cavs, but never that fiercely. Football to me, it's the Buckeyes and Browns and always will be. So thanks for that, Brian. Brian Kirk. How about that combination so, of Woody Hayes and the Steelers, but he gravitates to Cleveland? Yeah, yeah, go figure, yeah. right? The dad yeah. the dad was a big Woody Hayes fan. So, All right, and here's our last one, uh, Terry. This one's a little bit longer. It's from Dennis Kotnik, and he is from Slovenia. Okay. He says, hello, I heard on the Terry Pluto podcast an invitation for long-distance Cleveland fans. While my story is strange and long, in the second half of the 1980s, I was growing up in the former Yugoslavia. Now it is Slovenia. There we had a, quite a decent life. We could travel to Western Europe. Working families had cars and owned houses, skiing and seaside vacations. On the other side, no political parties were allowed. It was hard to grow private business. Shops had just two or three kinds of each item, not 50 as it is now. We had Western music and movies on radio and movies and TV. There was not that many programs. I was often studying in my room and some days started searching stations on the FM radio. And there I found some sports reporter passionately describing some game. I recognized that it was American football and the radio station was the armed forces radio, which was having full games in neighboring Italy. There's still an American base. It's about 150 miles away from my home in the following weeks, more games followed. And I learned the rules just by listening to the radio. Then I discovered the team names, the teams and names, somehow the Cleveland Browns, were most interesting to me. They say Cleveland has one of the largest populations of Slovenians in the world. I've never been there and have no relatives, but I like the surname of a certain QB named Kozar. It sounded mm -hmm. Slavic yeah. to me. 
Uh, and he said, today there's about 150 people in Slovenia with the surname Kozar. Um, and he says, I chose that NFC team. The Packers are my NFC team, but they were not very good at the time. The Armed Forces Radio followed all the pro sports, including the NBA. And then Cleveland had a team and quite a good one, the Cavs. I remember Price, Doherty, Harper. Um, around the year 1988, the Slovenian Italian TV program showed sports all day, and we could watch NBA and NFL games. I remember not single games, but names Matthews and Slaughter, Michael Jackson, Leroy Horde, Metcalf, and Vinny Testaverde. Testaverde. In the mid 90s, the Indians got very good, and of course, I followed some of their playoff games. Then they got this great coach, Francona. I often watched day highlights and play by play of the regular season games. Again, they were so close with the Cubs in the World Series, so many hurt pitchers and lost in Game 7. Somehow, I am a long-distance Cleveland sports fan. Um, I, I listen, I read Cleveland.com and Terry Pluto and other reporters, and I'm probably more a fan of the Cavs and Guardians than the Browns. But there is something strange with Cleveland sports. They often come so close but can never get to that trophy. Maybe someday I will visit Cleveland in person and go to these stadiums I know only from TV and radio. And he says, kind regards, this Dennis Kotnik from Slovenia. So there we go, Terry. Pluto Nation extends to Slovenia. Well, no one will ever accuse him of being a front runner when he adopted the team. Yeah, no kidding. Right. (laughs) uh, Well, I am of Slovak descent. So, and I believe Kozar is Slovak, because I think Bernie and I had that. Of course, Slovak and Slovakia, Slovenia, you know, all those little countries there. So, and he is correct in terms of the the the, uh, the Slavic base in our town is still real strong. So, hey, well, I'll take a reader anywhere he is. I'll take him all <laughs> over the globe. Well, that's one of the great things about Cleveland, too, is there's so many neighborhoods with so many yep. people from different parts of the world, and that, that's what makes this a fun place to live. So, uh, all right, Terry, we got to wrap it up here, but I, it is Thanksgiving week, and I, I, you always write a lovely Thanksgiving column each week, and I, maybe we want to talk about Thanksgiving real quick here. Because one of the things that um, I've known for almost ever is if you don't have any readers, they don't need any writers. And that the one I always write, without you, the readers, there's no need for us. And now, more than ever, readers can go read or listen however they want to uh, take their content, but they don't have to listen to any of us. And a lot of you still, obviously, you listen to this or whatever, you're the hardcore and the base, and we appreciate you. And, and you know, they, I, whether it's my books or just different things, and I'm just thrilled to, to be able to do this this long in the market where I grew up. And so this is, uh, I'm just grateful. And I really mean that, that, you know, at my stage of my career and that, that I could still keep going and people still care about what I have to say. And I think that like venues like the podcast allows uh, all of us to get to know each other better, whether it's the longer emails you send in or the stories that we tell here. Yeah, Terry, th- thanks. I want to echo that. Thank you for everybody who listens. And I wanted to say I'm, I'm thankful I get to do this with you every week. It's I think we've um, had a really fun run here, and I've learned a lot about you, and, and uh, it's been a great time. So thank you. I'm thankful for that we've been able to do this. Well, you're the boss, so i got to thank you too. <laughs> no, that, All right. <laughs> it, it is fun because I do think we had a discussion of how we're going to do this, and it's not going to be – profanity is not going to be have a hot take just to have a hot take i was talking to somebody who was recently at espn and it said it drove him nuts they would go in and just they want you well come in strong have a strong opinion and a lot of times like with Stephen vote 
I don't have a strong opinion. I don't know what he's going to do. I, I mean, we talked about different aspects of it. I don't know. Uh, and if you say that at ESPN, you'll get fired. Say he's going to be great. Say he's going to be terrible. Say something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this will wrap it up for this edition. Terry, anything you want to get into? We done? No, other than one last plug, terryplutobook.com. The guy with the sign is, I signed like 300 and some of these books. They're sitting there. Now they're, they're starting to move out of the place now, but a lot of them are still lonely looking for a home. All right. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, Terry. Everybody out there, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. If you're traveling, be safe, and we will catch you next week on Terry's Talking.